Good morning. If I were to burst out singing on a morning like this, it would certainly be the old spiritual, my Lord, what a morning. Isn't this magnificent? I said to someone earlier, for the last few weeks, we've had a bad Sunday wedged in between beautiful days, but this week we got it in its right place, and it is a magnificent day to come apart and worship God, and we're glad that you're here. And for those of you who are visiting with us, we want to extend a very special welcome to you and let you know how much it means to us to have visitors come and share in our worship together. Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives. It was late evening, and he looked out over the Kidron Valley. The world was bathed in moonlight. Everything was quiet. The only sound was the sound of a night breeze rustling the brittle branches of a fig tree. Jesus looked into the heart of the city that lay at his feet. It looked so calm there, bathed in the moonlight, erasing all of the disfigurement that is seen by day. It looked as though it were a veritable Eden. But Jesus looked beneath the surface, and there he saw the volcanic nature of that city, the seething hearts, the depressing images, the darkness hid. And as he looked, a teardrop formed in his eye and coursed down his face. Jesus looks at us. We appear so often as calm and tranquil. We are stoic in our true feelings and in our true natures when we come into the presence of Christ. But he looks beneath the cosmetic nature of our lives and sees what lies deep within. He knows when we possess that inner peace and when we're struggling to find it. It's what he talked about throughout his lifetime. When Jesus came into the world, it was with the promise of peace. The angels said on the night of his birth that peace was to come upon all the earth. And when he came to the end of his life, the benediction that he left behind was a benediction of peace. My peace I leave with you. If there is one thing that gives life meaning, if there is one thing that gives life fulfillment, it is to possess inner peace. And if we lack inner peace, there is nothing that can fill the void. It is a hungering that is never satisfied. There are so many things that we search for in life that appears to us to be that fountain of inner peace. If only we can possess that, 
If only we can reach that goal, then we will have that peace that we all yearn for. Most of these things we reach for enhance life, but do not give completeness to life. Good health enhances life. We who enjoy good health have so much to be grateful for, for we know so many who struggle with physical disabilities. And when we're healthy, we can face life more positively. A few years ago, there was a commercial on television repeatedly that stated, if you've got your health, you've got everything. But that's not true. I've known too many who at the peak of health took their lives. And I shall always think of Jane Marchant, who, living the life of an invalid in her bed in Knoxville, from childhood an invalid that could never leave her bed, propped up on her pillows, she could look through her window out into the fields and the trees, and she could watch the birds fly by her window, but she explored that world to depths that few of us ever go. She wrote down her discoveries to inspire those of us who walked out among the trees and never felt it, who walked upon the fields and never knew the freedom that she discovered from her invalid bed. Health enhances life, but it does not bring inner peace. Wealth enhances life. Poverty is not good. Poverty takes dignity and worth away from the individual, causes mental anguish and struggle that can be matched by a few other things. Wealth allows for possibilities that we would never experience if we're trapped in poverty. I've often wondered what I would do if I had great wealth. And I have convinced myself if I were a person of great wealth, the first thing that I would want to do would be to prepare for me a comfortable home into which I could go in my retired years and with security that would allow me to live out my years with that anxiety that comes from trying to cope with daily necessities. But that's all I want. I would use the rest of the wealth to do things for others that I see so badly that need to be done. I've often thought of the wounds that I could help heal if I only were a person of wealth. And then I wonder, if that wealth came to me, would I think that way then? Or would I fall victim to the things that wealth promised me if I were to use them self-indulgently? Sam Rogers was a young man with a family just beginning, an attractive wife, two small children, Uneducated, but with a lot of natural gifts, he started to work for his brother in a store. And after a while, he discovered that he had a knack for that sort of thing. And his brother put an investment in trust for him, bought a shop, and started out on his own. And he just had a real gift 
for merchandising that he had begun with his brother so that after a while he not only had that store but a second one. He added another to it and then he bought into a motel and finally he owned motels all of his own. Then he began to merchandise in other states and by the time that he was 40 he was a millionaire many times over. And then he began to change. He and his family who were always in their place in the church were rarely seen there now. Then he employed a beautiful young woman to be his private secretary. And as he traveled around the country from one business meeting to another, he always took his attractive secretary with him. And it was only a short time until his wife filed for divorce and the two children were taken away from him. But by now he had bought a new toupee. He bought his clothes at the finest men's stores and bought one of the most beautiful homes in town. He drove an expensive car. And then at the age of 50, he lay dying from cirrhosis of the liver, from too much drinking. And the wife with whom he had begun his life now sat at his side, and he died as she held his hand. Wealth enhances life, but it doesn't bring the rewards that it promises. Success enhances life, but it doesn't bring inner peace. Ralph Jordan was a vice president at General Motors, but he discovered that he was spending so much of his time for his company he was earning a good living for himself and his family, but he was missing out on so much that he felt life offered him. And so in the middle years of his life, he resigned his position, took his earnings, bought a chicken farm, and he and his family moved out on a chicken farm. And there he began to learn how to live. Success enhances life, but it doesn't bring inner peace. And inner peace is that one thing we all seek. Without it, life is nothing. Empty. With it, you have everything. Inner peace is that great quality that Christ offers. Job asked in ancient days, can a man by searching find God? And let us in that vein ask, can a person by searching find peace? We search for that quality. Some search by trying to find it where it lies out there somewhere, that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I have a friend who is so unhappy with his life that he's constantly traveling from one place to another. He's been almost everywhere around the world. And every time he reads of a new place, it sounds exciting. He can't wait to get there. But he hasn't discovered yet that when he gets there, he founds that, has found out that he has pinned up within himself. He carries himself with him. And only that which is within can one truly experience. For that which lies on the outside of our lives fades with the dying of the sun. It fades with our moving away from there to somewhere else. 
And yet so many of us are moving around trying to find that elusive Eden that somehow we feel if we can just get there, we've got everything that we want. Some of us try to find it by surrounding ourselves with pleasurable things. There's a lot of things that bring life pleasure. Beautiful music, beautiful homes, concerts. There are so many aesthetic opportunities that enlarges life and we take advantage of those things. But that is only reflective by what is on the inside. It is only magnified by what we already have there. And if we don't have the germ within us, then it doesn't take hold. It's superficial. Those who have many material things appear to us to be the happiest until we get to know them intimately. And we discover that if they're happy, it's in spite of their material possessions not because of them. When I was a student at the University of Tennessee, Joe Peacock and I came to the Smokies to teach a Sunday school class. Many of you know Joe Peacock's father. He was dean of the School of Agriculture. Joe and I went to a little mission that Robert Thomas had set up near Pittman Center. And in those days, Pittman Center was still an active missionary project of the church. I don't know where it was to which we went that Sunday afternoon. We got there only by Jeep. We couldn't have gotten there in our cars. We had gone over a mountain, down a dirt road, over rocks, alongside great precipices. Finally, we came down to a rocky farm. It was just a postage size stamp farm. On it was erected an old never painted house, not a log cabin, just planks nailed up to a shingled roof. One room, there was an old woman who must have been nearing her 90s, but so often with remote mountain women, age doesn't really show for what it is. She might have been much younger. There was a lout of a boy who lounged on the porch. Only those two lived there in that one room. Out beside the cabin was a garden, a rocky garden. It appeared that that young boy had never entered into the garden. It was she who did what was done to get food from the soil, and it was a poor soil. She was dressed in clothes of generations before. I've wondered so often since where that might have been. I'd love to retrace my steps and see if it's still there, but I have no idea where it was. It was just deeply hidden somewhere back in the Smoky Mountains. As we started to leave, she was so grateful for our visit. And she said, you know the day I'm looking forward to? And we asked her what? And she said, the day in which my friends come and sit here in my yard for my funeral. I've already told my minister that this is where I want to have my funeral because here is where I've known the joys of life. Here's where I've known all of the treasures that God has given me. Here where my flowers have bloomed. Here where my garden has given me food to eat. Here where I've slept in the house with people I love. Here's where I want it all to end. I don't want to be taken off to a 
faraway church. I want to be buried here among my friends where my life has been happiest. She had nothing but inner peace. And that's the thing that most of us would give all we possess in order to have. Can a man by searching find peace? No. It can't be found. As the characters of the Wizard of Oz discovered on their search for a heart and a mind and courage, it was in them all the while as they searched for it on the outside. If we ever find inner peace, it comes where we are from within. Inner peace is a byproduct. It's not an entity within itself. It is simply the byproduct of something else. Inner peace comes from being at peace with ourselves. Edgar Guest wrote, I have to live with myself, and so I want to be fit for myself to know. We who know ourselves more intimately than anyone else knows us have to know who we are and like who we are. So long as there is a struggle to be something different from the persons that we are, there's never that peace that we seek. The first step is to be at peace with ourselves. And Jesus gave us the next step. The byproduct is inner peace when we are at peace with our neighbors. When we can't get along with other people and have hostilities and grievances with others, there's no peace. For peace can't exist where we raise swords against other people. We have to learn to live together as brothers and sisters, and that's what Christ taught us. And peace is a byproduct of being at peace with God. And that is the ultimate peace. And we can't be at peace with God until we are at peace with ourselves, until we are at peace with our neighbors, and then we can be at peace with God. And when we have that peace, we have the ultimate peace. And our quest has ended. For we have found what life offers in its fullest. It was St. Augustine who said, God created us for himself and our lives are restless until we are at peace with him. And now this. Inner peace, it's all in the mind. Peace of mind not in the world out there outside ourselves, but within. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. Amen. Day of 
us to just as truth and love delivered from our selfish schemes may words of hate fall from our hands our hearts from envy find release till by God's Shall the wolf dwell with the lamb, nor shall the fierce devour the small, as peace and cattle calmly graze, a little child shall lead them all. Then Rise, dear friends, and go in peace, inner peace, and may God's peace go with you.
Morning. What a magnificent morning. Isn't this a beautiful day? It's so good to see all of you here. And for those of you who are our visitors, we want you to know how welcome you really are. We love to have friends come and worship our God together. And the moment you walk into our church, you're one of us, and we want you to feel truly that you're at home in our worship. I was told to read the announcements this morning because there are so many and some contradictory information that I need to uh, bring to your attention. So I'll rely on this this morning as I share with you the opportunities that are ours this week. The Council on Ministries, of course, will be meeting on tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock in the young adult classroom. This is our regular meeting of the Council on Ministries. And then this afternoon, the United Methodist Women General Meeting, it will be at 3.30 here in the Christian Fellowship, in the Christian, will the whole thing be in the Christian Fellowship classroom? You're not expecting many, are you? Think big. Let's surprise her. Let's fill it overflowing so they'll have to go into the chapel next time. But with uh, the place already designated, it will be the Christian Fellowship classroom at 3.30 this afternoon. The executive committee will meet at 3 o'clock prior to the meeting, the general meeting at 3.30. Roland Bikes is going to be the speaker, and that ought to bring out a large group. Roland is a fine pillar of our community and a great Christian gentleman. He's a pillar in the Woodlawn Church and he's going to share his experience as a short-term missioner. And then on next Saturday at 10 o'clock until 12 is the United Methodist Women's Day Apart and this will be at the Woodlawn United Methodist Church. It's a day for spiritual enrichment and renewal and it will be Concluded with a soup and salad luncheon at noon. Please let the church office know by Friday noon if you plan to attend the luncheon because the food has to be prepared on the basis of the number that are expected. So this will be from 10 o'clock until 12 o'clock uh, concluding with a soup and salad luncheon. And Mrs. Shirley Turkett will be the speaker for the day. Shirley was a member of my church at First Church Johnson City. Uh, sometimes professor at East Tennessee State University, and her husband is a full-time professor at the East Tennessee State University. She will be quite an outstanding speaker for you. Now, there will be no children's choir rehearsals this week, and there will not be a Bible study on Wednesday evening of this week due to other conflicts. On next Sunday evening, we have a real treat for us. Uh, Ms. Yang Raymond, tell me, what else? Jaye. <laughs> I'm going to let Raymond introduce her next Sunday night when she comes. She's a delightful person. She's visited in our church with the Suttons uh, previously and an outstanding pianist. I'm not going to tell all about her because it's in your communicator and you'll be reading about it again this week, but I want to urge you to really come out and be here for her concert on next Sunday evening. It will be an outstanding treat for us. It will be at the 
Sunday evening hour of 5 o'clock, but it will be here in the sanctuary. So please come out and show your support for her and enjoy a great evening. And then on Thursday of this week, the older adults will be going to the newly opened Apple House cafeteria in the College Square Mall. You'll be leaving at 10 o'clock in the morning and return about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So I know you'll want to share in this great fellowship outing. This covers the announcements that were given to me and the announcements in the communicator. Is there an announcement that I failed to make that needs to be made? And thank you so much. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Yea, our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let thy steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in thee. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us 
because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. While we were yet helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Why, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation. is a secret ingredient to life. We often hear that said about food, a secret ingredient that makes one food better than others. We hear it said about products, 
a product that has a secret ingredient that makes it superior to other like products. But about life, it's true. There is a secret ingredient without which life never rises above the commonplace. When possessed, life has no limits. Let's look at what makes us the persons we are. We are the persons that we become because of heredity. Heredity is simply those characteristics that are passed on to us from our parents. Everything is affected by heredity. Plants, animals, and especially persons. We take on characteristics that our parents possessed. We take on the outward appearance. We're tall, we're short. We have one color of eyes, one color of hair, dependent upon who our parents are, and we can't do anything to alter that. We have mental capacities that come from our parents. We are limited or we are expanded in our mental capacities according to the parents that bore us. Through heredity, we develop particular attributes, the gift of music, the gift of art. Those characteristics that make us the unique persons that we are come in a great measure from the parents who bore us. A patient said to his doctor, tell me one thing that I can do that will assure me the greatest possibility of a long and healthy life. And the doctor quickly answered, choose your parents well. Much of our health depends upon the parents that bore us. Because through heredity, the propensity towards certain illnesses or even the Developing of certain illnesses come about through heredity. Genes, that magic touch that allows us to live forever through our offspring and the passing on of characteristics. And so we become the persons that we are through heredity. The parents who gave us life. But it doesn't stop there. We become the persons that we are because of the environment in which we are reared. So much of who we are comes from the fact that we came out of certain environments. It's been said so often that parents who abused their children were abused children themselves. And a husband or a wife that abuses a spouse so often came from a family where spouse abuse was a part of their growing up. And we know that alcoholics so often come from alcoholic families. It's the environment in which we grow up that says so much about the persons that we become making it of great importance that we who rear children and have responsibility for nurturing them have to provide an environment 
in which they can grow, in which they see the very best in those about, in which they have examples set before them. Environment plays a great part in the persons that we become. But that's not all. Personal response plays a great part in spite of what we might become through our inheritance, through our environment. In the last analysis, it depends upon what we choose to do and who we choose to be. In every instance, we have the choice of yes or no. We hear so often the, slow, the slogan these days, say no to drugs. Say no to the many social vices that are all about us. We have the choice. We can say yes or no. We can refuse or we can accept. Jesus taught us that we ought to be sensitive to the choices that we make because it is in the choices that we make that determines to a great extent the persons that we ultimately become. And so we are. At the end of life, we are nothing more than the repository of the choices that we have made from the time of our childhood through all of the years of our living. Personal response, how we react, how we choose. And that's a part of what makes us the persons that we are. So here it is. We are all the product of our inheritance, our environment, and our personal response. And so many of us stop here. We never progress toward personhood beyond those three areas out of which growth comes. And when life stops here, it's never fulfilled. It's always disappointing but there is a secret ingredient Paul called it a gift a gift from God after we have experienced everything that can be ours in the world about there's one dimension more it's what God gives us that we cannot earn we cannot find in any other way just a direct gift from God. These are the gifts of the Spirit. We don't often talk about those and what a tragedy it is that we don't. This is what makes the difference in living. This is what lifts us from the commonplace into the ultimate, accepting God's gifts and they come merely from accepting them as God offers them. And they make all the difference in the world. Each of us in plotting out our lives seek one thing above everything else and that is inner peace. If we do not have inner peace, it doesn't matter what else we have. Life will not be full. It won't be beneficial. We'll be unhappy all the days of our lives. And the great pilgrimage of those who have failed in life is the fact that they have failed to reach the one thing that makes life worthwhile, and that is inner peace. 
inner peace comes from a great struggle. The greatest battlefield in all the world is the battlefield within our breast, where we battle realities, possibilities, defeats, fantasies. It's the place where we come to terms with life and with God. And too many of us desert that battlefield, giving it over to the enemy, trying to win the battle on the outside. It can't be done. Now there's a word for the kind of peace that the world gives. When Jesus came to the end of his life, he said, my peace I leave unto you, not as the world gives, but the gift that he alone would give. Too many of us seek the world peace, and there's a word for it. It can be had. It's nirvana. It is that peace that comes from dulling our senses so that we're no longer pricked to possibilities, so that no longer there is an urge to better. It is that time of coming to terms with things the way they are, never sensing anything better, and that is the most tragic level to which one can descend in his living. It is that level that is elevated in Buddhism in Buddhism, if you can achieve nirvana, you have to achieve the ultimate. And it is simply the fact that you can sit under a tree and no longer be hungry for beauty, no longer yearn for love, no longer have a desire for the ultimate, but you see things the way they are and become content with them. The Buddha lived 500 years before Christ. He was reared in a sheltered home. He was the son of a Raja, a prince of India. He was shielded from all of the poverty and the distress in the outside world as he was reared in the home with tutors, carried only to those places that were beautiful, peopled by persons like himself. But Gautama grew up. One day he left his palatial home and went out into the village and he looked into the faces of starving people. He saw people walking about in rags. He heard beggars crying for alms and he was stunned by it all. He did not know that a world like this existed. He had been protected from it and he went home and he couldn't shake it from his mind. He struggled how to come to terms with all of this. And so at an early age, he left home in search of peace. He sought it by practicing yoga. Many today practice yoga to find peace. That is simply bringing your mind and your spirit under domination by physical control. He tried that. But peace didn't come. He tried fasting. But peace didn't come. He tried isolation. He became a hermit, but peace didn't come. And the years were passing, and he was growing more and more discontent with life that had so much suffering in the world about him, and he had no way to break through. And one day he suddenly remembered 
There was a day in his childhood when he sat under a tree in contemplation and he remembered on that day as he sat and contemplated there swept over him a kind of peace that he had not known before and so the idea struck there is the source of peace and so he went into contemplation he sought out a tree by a creek side and there he sat he folded his legs he folded his arms and he began to stare out on one object thinking contemplating and the time passed and suddenly nirvana came he was no longer concerned about the hungry people that lay along the streets he no longer felt pangs for those who were suffering illnesses leprosy he no longer yearned for that which was sublime he was content he had found nirvana and the world is peopled with those who are content to be insensitive and it is a peace that comes from no longer caring the world gives that kind of peace out of it Buddha did make four great discoveries the four noble truths he called them if you just won't go any further you've got a great foundation here these were truths that he came to perceive one is that suffering is a part of everyone's life and the greatest suffering is that suffering that comes from yearning for pleasure and searching for pleasure causes us to find our pleasure in material things and suddenly we've discovered that we are slaves to those material things which give us pleasure and his fourth truth was there are eight steps of discipline that you follow to find nirvana stop with the third and you've got a good basis for beginning but he doesn't stop there and it goes too far but that's where many of us stop trying to find peace in pleasure in things until we become slaves to things there's another word shalom nirvana is peace that comes from the world shalom is the peace that comes from God There was an Indian who lived in this century who yearned for peace the way that the Buddha had yearned for peace. And he had been reared in the Buddha faith, but it did not give him the kind of fulfillment he chose. His mother died in his early years, and he, lacking her loving and her caring, grew up trying to discover something of worth outside of himself. At the age of 14, he became disillusioned with life. <clears throat> he had read all of the books on religion. He had tried all of the experiments, and still he was restless and unhappy. On his 15th birthday, he decided he would end it all. 
he would find his peace in death. There was a train that rolled by his house at 5.30 in the morning, and he thought the quickest way to do it is to leap in front of the train just as it passes by. And so that morning he arose earlier than usual. He prepared himself for going down to the railroad tracks and taking his life. But before he left his room, he remembered words of a missionary that had said that you can always speak to God whenever you don't know what course of action to take, and God will answer. He'd never tried it. He'd tried only everything in his own religion, but here, just before taking his life, he decided that he would try this one last thing, and so he began to pray, and suddenly a light filled the room. He said, I saw a vision of Christ, and he told me that he could make all things well. And I accepted that word, he said. He rushed into his father's room and he said, Father, I've become a Christian. And his father denounced him for making such a statement in that house. They were true practitioners of their religion and the word of Christ had no place there. But he had found what his searching had not brought to him. And so his father put him out of the home told him he could either recant the Christian faith or he could leave home. And so he left home and he spent the first night under the shelter of a tree. It was cold. He trembled. He was filled with fear. And at the same time, there was a peace that swept over him. He didn't give up what he had found. And so he began living the life of one who followed Christ in India. They came to call him the St. Francis of India because he put only the, the robe of a sandhu on, the poorest of the holy men. And he walked around all of India, caressing the lonely, caring for those marked with leprosy, finding food for those who were hungering. Everywhere he went, he was taking care of those who had nothing. He especially dwelt among the untouchables. He who had been born in a home of wealth, his father was an aristocrat, and yet he fell down to the lowliest estate in their caste. He became an untouchable for the sake of the untouchables. He came to America America was a Christian nation. He wanted to know more about it. His missionary had come from America, but he was appalled at what he found here. He said the people were swallowed up in wealth and luxury while millions in his homeland were dying of hunger and no one cared. And he threw off America as quickly as he could to go back to his homeland, India. Sandu Sudu Song, the St. Francis of India, who found his peace in Christ. He decided he hadn't done enough. He would take Christ to those in the Himalayas who were seeking to find contentment and peace the way that he had found sought it and had failed. 
he set out to climb the Himalayas, 19,000 feet of climbing, and he climbed until he came to Tibet. And there he tried to take the word of Christ to the Tibetans, those who had followed the Buddha. He came to those priests who in seeking nirvana had so often entombed themselves, living in tiny cells, some living in darkness from their earliest years until the time of their dying, never looked upon the sunshine, never saw the face of a flower, living in darkness, a tiny hole in the side of their cells through which food would be passed to them, fearing that if they broke out of their cells, they would lose their concentration upon nirvana. He wept for the poor people of Tibet who did not know the peace that he had. He came back out of the Himalayas, walked among the lepers, the untouchables, telling of Christ's love. Finally, he grew old, as all do. The year was 1929, and the sadhu decided that he would pay the ultimate price before his death he would climb again the Himalayas to the people of Tibet. He left his home, his friends, aware of the fact that now he was stooped, his heart pained at times, he breathed erratically, but he was determined, and they watched him disappear in the mist as he climbed the great peaks of the Himalayas, never to be seen again. He found shalom in the world of nirvana. But that was India. That was generations ago. What about today? This is a new world. This is a revolutionary world we're living in. Is not nirvana and shalom outdated? Are we not living at a time when we can receive all that we're searching for in the realm of science and physics? and the realm of the nuclear discoveries of our world? Ask Gert Bahena. Gert Bahena is a contemporary of ours who was born in wealth, lived in wealth, had everything that anybody would want that wealth could bring, and the most unhappy person in the world. She went through three marriages just like she was buying a new outfit. She had children, and then she hired governesses to take care of the children, and she never knew the joy of mother love. She said, I got up in the morning, and I took a pill to stimulate me. I drank alcohol all through the day to keep me going, and then I took a sleeping pill to let me go to sleep at night. And those were the years that she lived. A fine home, great wealth, and loneliness and unhappiness. She was 53 years old when out of her desperation she turned to Christ and he came to her as he does to all of us when we let him. She said, for the first time in my life, I held a Bible in my hands. I had never even held a Bible in my hands until I was 53 years old. And she said, I opened it up and started reading and I couldn't put it down. I read and I read and my heart warmed, my life expanded. I had to tell everybody about it and I couldn't wait until Sunday came. I wanted to go to church. I'd never been to church in my entire life. And she said, Sunday 
came and I started out and the closer I got, the more fearful I became. What will I do? These are people who've known all their lives what I've just found. I'll be so small among them. Will they even accept me? And she walked into the church and she sat down and when the service was over, she left and not one person spoke to her. And she said, I was glad to get out because I was in a building of unhappy people. They didn't have the joy I had. They didn't have the sense of expectancy that flooded me. I looked into their faces and they were as unhappy as the people I saw in stores and on the street. And I couldn't understand it. But she said, I had it myself and I wasn't about to let that destroy my faith. And she said, as the years passed, she came to discover that not everybody has allowed the gifts to come. They're Christians in their hearts, but they're Christian only in the sense of not depending upon the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit to make their lives full and meaningful. And the, she no longer passed judgment upon those that didn't have it. She felt only sorrow that they had missed it. She was allowed to live more than 20 years to tell about the joy that she had found. And death came to her only recently. She was invited by Sam Shoemaker to speak at Calvary Episcopal Church in Philadelphia to tell the people there of her experience. 500 people were there and she said, I couldn't speak to anybody. I never made a speech in my life. And I, of all people, was not equipped to speak. But she said, I had to tell it. It was burning in my soul. And she said, I trembled. I had a manuscript in front of me and I never took my eyes off the manuscript. And when I left the pulpit, I almost fainted. But the people had listened. They realized I had experienced something that many of them hadn't. And I got another invitation to speak and I filled it. But then she said, I got an invitation from Yale University. I was to speak at their chapel and I was to be the first woman ever to speak at their chapel. And all the fears came up again. I didn't know if I could go through with it or not because these are the kind of people I had lived with all my life. The wealthy, the professionals. What would they say when I got up to speak? Would they condemn me? Would they denounce me? Would they make me feel uncomfortable? And she said, I was about to back out when I suddenly realized I haven't let God in on this. And she said, I stopped where I was and I said, God, you've given me the gifts that I've needed for everything I've tried. Now give me the gift of peace that I can walk up to that podium and say what I've got to say without fear, without trembling, with poise. And she said, suddenly it all fell away. I'd tried every gimmick, but now God did it. And she said, I walked up to the podium, I threw away my manuscript, and I began to speak for the first time from myself, and it was the easiest thing I've ever done. And when I walked away, they gave me an ovation, and I've never had a problem again of standing up and telling the people 
what God had done for me. She found shalom, the peace that comes from God. So here we are. The world has promised us peace, but if it comes by the world alone, it's nirvana, a loss of sensitivity to the things that we once yearned for. But the gift that comes from God, that secret ingredient to life, is the gift of peace that comes from God and nowhere else. And now this. Shalom to each of you. Amen. strong.